Welcome to Camera Ready and Able, the podcast that explores the intersection of media change and personal growth. I'm your host, Barbara Barna Abel, and my calling is to help you tap into your superpowers, thrive on camera and in life, and make an impact on the world. This episode is brought to you by the word decide, which Oxford Languages defines as a verb, that is, of course, an action, to make a choice from a number of alternatives or come to a resolution in the mind as a result of consideration, which, of course, indicates thought. My guest for this episode, Beth Lapidus, wants to know how many decisions you make each day and is so interested in the topic, she wrote an audiobook about it called So You Need to Decide, a series of intimate conversations with a diverse group of comedians, writers, and cultural icons revolving around five universal experiences, family, work, love, moving, and spirituality. The decisions that come through in each of these moments are not about the rigidity of control. It's about the fluidity of dancing with the chaos. I cannot tell you, I am so in love with this, Beth. I cannot await Thank to get my you. hands on these audio files. So Beth, if you don't know her already, is the godmother of alternative comedy and the creator, host, and producer of LA's Uncabaret, the first alternative comedy show ever which launched more than 25 years ago. Beth is also a writer whose work has appeared in Time, the Los Angeles Times, Premiere, O, the Oprah Winfrey Magazine, and Elle Decor. Plus, Beth has written commentaries for All Things Considered on NPR and has so many impressive credits that I just had to cut myself off there because we can just go on for days talking about the comedians you've launched, your incredible talent. What I really want to talk about all day long is how you provide tremendous value to your audience and keep showing up consistently and persevering through the hard parts, which I hope that we get to. But I really also want to celebrate the launch of your book. So want to start by asking what prompted you to put sweat and love into this book and this topic? Um, you know, it's so funny. I There was a book opportunity. You know, I, I love I love bo- I, I love books. I mean, I've always loved books. Books have saved me so many times. And um, I connected with an agent and a book, you know, like a not a literary Hollywood agent, like a book agent. I was so excited. I was like, books, it's going to be it's my book time. It's time for books again. And I mean, even as a young artist, I used to make these giant. I, I my earliest work was one of a kind books that were shown at the Metropolitan Museum of Art Library and, it, you know, in Barcelona. And my I got NEA grants to do them. And and then I turned these little tiny books into performance pieces because I had this feeling like the little one of a kind books, what could happen? What's the best thing? Rich people would buy them. It just seemed very skewed weirdly, the art world. So I made these giant books and started performing in front of them. And that's a whole, but that was my early performance work. And then I had a whole career as a performance artist before I decided to, you know, really go down the path of funniness. You know, that, that was a very clear decision moment. And so, and then this, you know, and also because UNCAB has been so revolutionary and so in a way experimental and I just felt so happy. I was like, books, it's so, you know, it's just a known medium. It's, you know, for once I'm not going to be on the cutting edge. And then this agent who I really love said to me, you know, you know what I could sell? I could sell you doing an original audio book. That's very hot right now. So once again, 
here I am doing, you know, something unknown, what it really is. What is an original audio book? Is it a podcast? No. Is it a book? No, it kind of, you know, it's this very new kind of thing, which was exciting. And, you know, when I was looking for what I wanted to write about, decision-making is something that really, it's a thread. It's something I've thought about. And it's see, we were sort of headed into an election season decision, you know, 2020. Mm. I just thought that word just kept, it just kept sort of vibrating for me. I would just say that it, there was a vibration to the word and, um, and, and that was what drew me the vibration of the word. I mean, that sounds kind of kooky, but that's true. No, we love listening to the muse and the vibration and the energy and the messages that we get. Right. I was really looking forward to even d- drill down deeper in the decision to do decisions, you know, what I'm looking for as a writer and, you know, a little bit as a producer is something that I have a lot to say about and that this book was going to be a combination of my writing and uh, conversations with the peoples. And uh, I knew people had decision-making stories. I mean, after producing on Cabaret for so many years, I could tick off, you know, you want to look for where is their meat, you know, where is their it's sort of like a divining rod, you know, you're looking for water and it's like, yeah, there, there's a lot to talk about in decision-making. It's going to be funny. It's going to be deep because that's what decision-making decision-making is. So, you know, I, I sort of did the litmus test on all that stuff and, and uh, I knew it would, I knew there would be a lot and there was. Okay. That's amazing. Cause just as you said that, I realized it hallmark of a good concept is because decision-making is high stakes. We have skin in the game. Yeah. I mean, so good creatively. Are you decisive yourself? I can't decide how to answer that. (laughs) Um, Yes, I am. I am decisive. And I've also sometimes been into, and no one is completely one way or another. I mean, there are all, but I would say in general, I am decisive. Um, Though some of that decision-making I've been, I've also flirted so much with and played around and explored the idea of going with the flow. And I think that those two ideas going with the flow and, you know, decisiveness are often seen in opposition to each other, though going with the flow simply means making instantaneous decisions and a decision to understand the flow. It doesn't mean Mm. go willy nilly. I mean, to go with the flow doesn't mean just I make no decisions. It means I decide to experience the flow and align myself with it. So that, that is not the same as like letting life just kind of knock you around. Well, I'm sitting with that for a sec. That was good. Cause that's a deeper version of Ariana Huffington's life as a dance between making it happen and letting it happen. But you yeah. just tapped into the strategy of that, <laughs> of un- right? And it's like, yeah. is the letting it happen in alignment with yeah. what's happening? Then we can get all deep about like, but cause you know, sometimes the learning happens when, we, you know, we're in the Michigosh and we and we're like, ah, I don't know what to do. Well, yeah, that's it's be okay to decide to wait as well. I mean, I think, one of the things I'm really engaged in right now for myself is learning more patience. I think I've been impatient. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, all I can tell you is the decision to wait and sleep on it 
uh, is a real decision. You know, the decision to one of the things we really need to get right. I mean, I say we I'm including everyone and I'm sorry if you feel uh, that imposes on you, listener. But we really do need to get that, you know, to sit in uncomfortableness, to sit in uncertainty, to sit in unknown all the decision to be okay in ambiguity. I mean, we're, you know, okay, you know, we're recording this at a moment when a new variant is happening, you know, whatever, whenever you're listening to it, there's a new uncertainty. And we need to understand that knowingness is never a hundred percent. I mean, I think this idea of a hundred percent, this has destroyed a lot of, um, a lot of us imperfectionism, a hundred percentism, because the other side of it is nothingism. And so my last one person show was called hundred percent happy, 88% of the time. I really explored that idea in that. Oh, wait, I feel, I feel a part two coming on. Cause there's just so much to go <laughs> with. I'm like, I, oh my God, you could just become a, a regular. You would. Um, I just want to pause for one sec, just to bring people up to speak. Cause I want to get back to the book is just to explain what uncabaret is. And, um, Really briefly, and just to say, because I was just sharing with you, I, I showed up at Luna Park in 1993 and vividly, I mean, to the point I can remember what she was wearing on stage. First time I ever saw Kathy Griffin perform. Right. It was, nice. it was a Sunday night, right? Yeah, yep. yeah. We were Sundays for sure. Yep, we, were, there. we were every Sunday for seven years. We took two Sundays a year off. Wow. And, and every it's time I was in LA, I was, and I was there on a Sunday, I was you know, uncabaret. And so the list, I, I'm going to put it in the show notes so that we don't, because it would take all day to list all the names of the comedians who were on that stage. It's just incredible. But so that I mean, way, you know, just to, I think it gives people a good understanding of what uncabaret is to sort of say, you know, besides Kathy, Julia, Sweeney, Patton, Oswald, uh, Margaret Cho, that's a real flavor, you know, the kind of storytelling and, um, well, I can, do you want me to share a little more about what it is now or? Oh yeah, feel free. Cause I want, what I want to do is segue then into the amazing people who you interviewed okay. for the book. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's see. I mean, the idea of on cabaret was stories really. And the idea of being in the now so that you were telling the ongoing story of your life as it was happening. And, and the way that evolved was sort of complicated, but that is what it, what it was. And it happened. I mean, the, the sort of light bulb moment, the Malcolm Gladwell blink moment happened. I was doing a, a one person show at a small art space, downtown LA called the women's building. And they were laughing a little too hard. You know, as a comedian, you kind of know, like, Wow, either it's it's more than generous and it's more there it's a little desperate. And afterwards I was like, when was the last time you laughed? I mean, it's not quite that funny. And uh they were like, Oh, we don't laugh. We're women and we're artists and we're lesbians. And if we go to the comedy clubs, they just make fun of us. And I said, I'll, when I get back from tour, I'm gonna make you a show. It's gonna be unhomophobic, unxenophobic, unmisogynist, it'll be on cabaret. I don't know where it came from, Barbara. I don't, I wasn't plotting it. I wasn't planning it. It was a total download. It was an instantaneous decision, but I talk a lot in the book. Uh, I tell the story of there should be a Malcolm Gladwell other edition, a, a compendium to Blink, which is called Stare, 
because you you stare at something a long time and then suddenly you blink. Sure, the blink is the exciting part. It's the splash. But nevertheless, there's a lot of work that goes on before that. So I, I got to do in the book a really deep dive of what made me become a person who was there in that moment. What was what were my frustrations with the comedy world, with the art world, with the you know being a woman in the comedy world, being uh, you know not wanting to do tight tens all the time, and so it was my um, experience that you know uh, it opened the door, and that was the un, and um, and it's a little weird because un is almost a negative idea, and I'm kind of a I don't know. I once had somebody say to me, you're very negative for a positive person. So maybe it's the perfect. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm not. You know. <laughs> um, so that was that. And then, you know, as I approached comedians uh, who, you know, I thought might be interested in doing something different at the beginning, it was just different. Like, you know, we're taking it out of the comedy clubs. But, at, and, and, you know, in the first, you know, Taylor Negron, Judy Toll, Dana Gould were near the beginning. But Judy and Taylor, we did it at the Women's Building until they lost their funding. And then Judy and Taylor and I um, did a run at Highways Performance Space. And that was really, so I think of it as sort of the insemination, then the gestation with Judy and Taylor, where really the DNA of it was, you know, really formed because it was... Judy's just obsessive intimacy. I mean, she just, everyone thought they were Judy's best friend. I, you know, it was just insane. And she really paved the way for a lot of what we think of it. Well, I mean, you know, I look at Amy Schumer and I just think, oh, you know, she's daughter of Judy Toll. I mean, just that bearing of every detail and, um, and then Taylor's sort of LA and Dada and poeticness, but also, you know, super like punchliney at the same time. And then my kind of heady ideas and poeticness. And uh, anyway, so it was sort of a braid. And then by the time we got to Luna Park, a lot of that had been formed. And then the group really started to come together. Things take a long time to begin. I think this is part of my part of what I want to tell people because it's easy. It, you know, I've told that on, you know, on homophobic, on xenophobic, on misogynist, on cabaret stories so many times. So it makes it seem like, oh, wow, it's just, you know, you toss it off, you get an idea, you just do it. And, and that's usually not how it is with ideas. You know, it usually is you get an idea, it seems fun, and then you get nervous about the idea, maybe you back away, and then you have to try some things. You know, it's a much more complicated process. And so by the time we got to Luna Park, and then the group started and then Janine came in and then um, Bob Odenkirk and David Cross. And so it started to grow. Rick Overton was in the early group. Um, and and people started bringing, you know, Judy was really the one that brought Kathy in because she had the connection to the Groundlings and the Groundlings was Kathy and Julia and Tim Bagley and Mike McDonald. And they all sort of one brought another one, brought another one. And and, it, you know, for them, it was an escape from characters, you know, for them, it was an escape from having to hide behind a character and to really be able to connect as themselves. For stand-ups, I mean, you know, people were coming to Uncab having already done massive amounts of work. I mean, Bob came to, and he tells an incredible version of this story in, in the book. I'm very excited for people to hear this story. He tells the story of deciding to leave Saturday Night Live. And, um, I think that that's so helpful for 
really anyone. I mean, it was, it's interesting and helpful for anyone, but especially people near the more beginning of their career to hear about these hard decisions. And he had nothing waiting for him. You know, Dana Gould had already done HBO One Night Stands. I mean, people had already done all sorts of things. It wasn't like, oh, hey, we're just learning. But nobody had done this thing, which was, and, and, and how this thing really evolved was, at first, I just told people, do the thing that if you're not going to do it, your head is going to explode. And then as the audience was starting to find us, and that took a minute too, um, they were loving it and then starting to bring friends. And so they were coming back. You couldn't do the same thing. It was kind of the same people. So it was a different model of working than you go up at a comedy club and it's a new busload of tourists every night. This is like a community now that's growing and a community that's only bringing the people that they, you know, want to have there. So it's Sunday nights. It has a church feeling. It's very confessional. Some of the things that happened at the beginning were, I remember people were like, well, so, I mean, it's just like therapy. And I'd just be like, how's that bad? I mean, everything that people insulted it with, I was like, yeah, that's the whole point. It's oh, just, I didn't know therapy was an insult. I was like, yeah, I agree. I totally yeah. agree. Yeah. Well, now you know, <laughs> the world has definitely changed since the beginning. Uh, we live in a much more therapized, but also in comedy, the comedy boys, you know, and the comedy boys were like, why does she get to decide? I'm like, well, you want to know me into the improv. So that's why. Right. Because you claimed it. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to. So anyway, that's probably more than you wanted to know about the beginnings of Uncap. Uh, Okay, it's up to me to decide if that's more or not. <laughs> yes, and is. I choose that it is not more than I wanted to know. In fact, I'm ready for more. But in the meantime, I want to then segue to the book because the list of people I have here, Margaret Cho, Isaac Mizrahi, Bob Odenkirk, Phoebe Bridgers, Baron Vaughn, who I love and adore. Oh, so Charlotte Merrill Marco, Josh Gondel. I mean, like, I mean, amazing list of people. So how did you choose them? And how did you choose the five topics? Hmm. There were some more topics and I chose them by the, what ended up making the cut was the things that were just, you know, had people have the most stuff on juiciest. I kind of thought there might be funny stories and interesting stories about consumerism and deciding like what you're going to buy. And that seemed very rich and no, there's nothing. Nobody had <laughs> there a few others. So, you know, these were the, these are the topics. I mean, these are the topics in a way. I mean, there are no other topics. And These are the five. That's it. There are no, you're writing that book. It's like the seven plots. And now we have, we have Beth Lapidus and the five topics. The five topics. I love I it. There are other times. I mean, <laughs> I have a second, a second book I want to do and it is a different time. So it's not, but anyway, these were rich and the people, you know, I had a, a bigger list and as uh, part of it, it was who was available. Some people wanted to do it and weren't available while I was doing it. And that's the truth of booking behind the scenes for everyone who hasn't worked in, in TV or tried to get guests for anything. I will tell you, because that's every time I'm watching even a documentary, they're like, why isn't there so-and-so in this? I'm like, they weren't available. They weren't available. Or, or this is my favorite one. We couldn't get rights to the footage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's I digress. That. <laughs> also that. Um, and I did want to make sure that there was some sort of you know, I, I look at it as a group too. You know, I wanted to make sure there were some. I, it's not hard for me to make sure there's enough women. I mean, that's that's always easy. Yeah, I don't know. You know, diversity to some extent. Generation. Did anybody did anybody surprise you? 
I mean, like you love everyone, but I meant like something you're like, whoa, I wasn't expecting to hear that or, or shocked me. Like I wasn't necessarily shocked by anything, but there were some, I mean, there were Dave Holmes tells the story about coming out. That is so, I love him. Let's just say it involves the Indigo girls. It's just in that perfect timing. And you just like, you have to hear the Dana Gould story about his, this love decision. I never, one thing that was interesting, some of the more regular uncapped people, you know, had made big decisions that I knew about, but it was so much sort of in the past. We tried to revisit and then the revisiting, you know, the nowness of stories, people can't, you, you can't overlook that. So it was really what was most present for people ended up usually making the cut. Okay. I love that. I got to ask you, are there any decisions you regret? Oh, I will talk so much about regrets in this book. I mean, just so, okay. So you're teasing. We have to wait till we get the book no, to get into the regret story. This. I will just say this. I talk about regrets a lot and, um, I don't, you know, and I talk about, uh, I take a pretty deep dive into the idea of when you hear people say, I don't regret anything because everything I did got me to this moment now. And it's like, you have to feel so good about this moment now to be able to say that. And I think it's also very self, a very selfish thing, because how can you not regret times when you've hurt someone? Mm-hmm. How can you never regret that. How can you not regret not having done better sometimes at something. We look at that question in a very selfish kind of way. Usually I once heard Bette Midler say on, oh, I don't know. I can't remember which late night show. I regret everything. I regret every decision. I mean, that, that to me is the, the perfect answer for that, but yeah. So I do, I, I do have, I think I have less and less regrets. Mm-hmm. Once I started looking at my regrets and what I regretted and sort of making amends and sort of adjusting my life so I'm not accumulating more regrets, I mean, it does take you to a certain point of adulthood to say, huh, do I have regrets? And then, I mean, unless you have like amazing parenting, you know, dealing with like a 10 year old and her regrets at dinner. What do you regret, darling? What's what's happening today? Do you have any regrets from fourth grade? I mean, once you start looking at it and trying to sort of account for your regrets, I think you start. Or at least I did. I mean, I think I I think I'm accumulating less regrets and that's a good feeling. I'm also curious. It's a question I asked in the beginning. What has kept you going? Because it's perseverance. And I do, we're friends on Facebook and I follow along. Right. And um, it's not always smooth sailing because you have a deep, rich life. So do you ever think about that? Because resiliency and being resilient and grit and fortitude are, ta- uh, you know, synonyms that come up a lot right. on the show. Um, you know, I do think about the relationship between persistence and stubbornness. And it's a very thin line, Barbara, thin line. I am stubborn. Um, I feel, I feel purposeful, I guess, is one thing. I also am not in a position to stop working. That's another thing. I mean, a girl's got to, you know, girl's got to buy a new shirt every now and then. (laughs) So who's going to do that for me if I don't keep going? I don't know. I, you know, on cabaret was a decision that, I wasn't a hundred percent conscious that like, I kept thinking it was going to pay off in some big way. 
and it has paid off in a million wonderful ways. And it's, you know, it flourishes, but it was never, you know, it was never a ka moment really with Uncab. So I've really had to temper the time that I spend on Uncab so that I can do, you know, my other work. And that's been, you know, that's challenging because Uncabaret is like a screaming baby that's always like right there. So I've pulled back a little bit on scheduling and that's helped a bit. And, um, you know, we kept innovating during, I, I mean, I have a lust for innovation. I have a curiosity that I think has been helpful. I do love people and I love seeing people in the particular way that I get to see people in my work. And it's different than a party and it's different than having coffee with someone. And it's, it's just its own particular way of being with people. And I love that way. And so I really have, um, I, and I love movement and moving through things and I love laughing. So I'm very grateful because it's not, I mean, I have lost steam a few times. I mean, about 12 years ago, I really hit a rocky patch and it was very hard and I revolutionized my whole life. And, you know, um, I learned so much from that time. I really did reinvent. I don't know if you would see it from the outside, but I did reinvent myself on the inside to some extent. And I stopped drinking. I got divorced. I went, I, you know, there was, I, there was a house that was lost. I mean, it was huge. It was just like one of those why don't I do it all at once? That'll be easy. I don't wish it on anyone, but I'm super grateful for it because it was pretty big. It was definitely a big time. And so, you know, what I, when I teach people, I can see people sometimes getting dim around shoulds. And I think that for me too, uh, there are things I've thought I should do and they've never worked. And you know, there are certain things around in my difficult time. I had lunch with Michael Patrick King and he just looked at me and said, you didn't do anything wrong. Like it just keeps working out differently for everyone all the time. I mean, you think at a certain point, we live in a culture where you think it's supposed to work out a certain way. And so, you know, I'm a spirit, you know, I, I live on my yoga mat and my yoga practice keeps me going. I love what I do and I have a, I have a very strong desire to, to communicate and connect with people. And I think those things have to share and to help and also to be in the light and the spotlight. I love it all. I, I love it. And what keeps me going is that really. Well, that's a wonderful segue into, because in doing my research, it goes I had a bunch of more questions for you, almost like a lightning round. All right. Because these were choices that come up in the in the book notes and then in my research. Okay. Because we're making choices all the time. So artifice or authenticity? Oh gosh, authenticity. But authenticity does have uh, doesn't mean you don't get to wear makeup. I mean, but authenticity in the core, and then play around with you know play around with art. I mean, the artifice of uh, life fashion and style and um conformity i i'm interrupting you only because as a media coach i love this so much because uh doing a media appearance going on a stage all of that is artifice and then you have to act natural in an artificial setting so i just love this even as a positioning of a question okay and that and that working as an employee at any given moment understanding what it is to be authentic which is not necessarily about saying whatever comes on your mind unfiltered 
It's not the same. That's a great point. And so it, all of that. So I just loved that, even that it's there and understanding at any given day, like, what do those words really mean? How do we blend them together? The whole positioning of this, of your book and this whole concept to me is like, we're making choices about that constantly. Yeah. See, you're bringing up a great point. And that, this is one of those decisions that you kind of, it's like a preliminary decision. You decide I'm going to opt for authenticity, period. And then that directs a lot. You, you already decided that. You don't have to decide it over and over and over again. That's done. And that just means like, ooh, this doesn't feel like me. Ooh, when I put this on, it feels fake. You know, when I teach comedy, you but funnier, one of my classes. And it's how do you do that? How, and that was one of the Uncabaret's main things is just be yourself and be funny. You know, don't ever sound like someone else. And this may be a funny example, but when you look at like the voice patterns of different Uncabaret people, or I would listen from the other room when it was being audio edited, I could always hear like, oh, that's Jeff Garland or that's Laura Keitlinger, or, you know, I can, you just by the sound of their voice, they were so themselves. The rhythm of your voice is the wave your inner truth rides in on. Oh my gosh. I feel like I need tote bags, mugs, something. (laughs) There's a whole Bethlehem. Oh my God. I can't wait to get to the transcript for this. That's great. Because then that leads, well, there's, see, there's so many of them because I actually also love, would you rather plumb the depths or float near the surface? And I'm like, it depends on what time of day you're asking me. Yeah. Because sometimes after I've been plumbing, yeah. there's nothing I'd rather do than just float. Yeah. And that's absolutely, of course, we're all, you, that's what makes it fun. I mean, it's the wave. It's it, up and down, in and out, you know, life, everything is a wave. Every That's life is a wave. That's what life is. Life is energy. Energy comes in on waves. Life is a wave. We are wavelengths. That's what we are. Oh my God, it's Beth Lapidus quotes are us. I just love this so much. <laughs> because then this is what I wanted to go, because I want two questions I wanted to know. And because uh, I could always put this in the in the notes, was your go-to resources, because you have done the work, sis. But this is the note that I loved. Less self-obsession, more self-love. Yeah. I I don't know. I mean, I maybe have heard that in a million. I mean, I've I've heard things about that. But I really boiled that down for myself one day. I was just like, oh, this is what it is. I want that on a billboard. Times Square. Yeah. yeah, that might be. I'm going to write it down because I'm always looking for what are the ones I should turn into turn into, <laughs> into things. But, you know, I have to say the first time that I heard somebody say, you know, love yourself, I almost threw up. I was like, do I have to do everything myself? I mean, enough, you know, and, you know, I've lived a pretty do-it-yourself life despite, you know, I've had amazing, you know, corporate sponsors sometimes and corporate partners and plenty of partners, but it is a kind of, do, you know, I have been more DIY than many people. And I just was tired and I was just like, I don't want somebody, uh, and whiny, victimy. But anytime you hear the whiny, victimy sound, you know, you're on the wrong course. Like, if you want to know if you're going in the wrong direction, ask yourself, do I feel like a victim? Does it sound like I'm whining? Turn it around. That's the thing. But at the same time, so, all right, loving yourself. And what does that mean? And partly that means being authentic. I mean, to connect it to what we were just talking about. You can't love yourself if you aren't yourself. You can only love yourself if you are yourself. You can't love some fake version of yourself because it 
you know, see what I'm saying? Oh, I see what you're saying. And it shows up in imposter syndrome. It shows up in the pressure we feel in social media. Cause that's why I thought it was such a timely and incredibly relevant and succinct phrase because we're self-obsessed. It's like how I should be showing up to your point. It's like, I should be this place in my career. I should look this way and all these things. And so all that is so self-denying, minimizing, unhealthy, toxic, every other word we want to come up with. And so it, it, and it so it's hard to get to the self-love yeah. in the, um, you know, I'm a card carrying member of the Brene Brown fan club. And so, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Right. And just to get to that, you know, perfectly imperfect. And that's hard because the world around us is not supporting that, which again gets to why I was so excited. It was honestly, you announced something somewhere on social about your book. And that's why I reached out. I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. I got to talk to God. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we all have different ways of learning it. I mean, one of the, one great thing has been, I've, I've done a million different meditations, but a friend of mine became a Vedic uh, meditation teacher. And then we were like, I guess we have to like Chris teach us this. And I was actually depressed about it. I was like, another meditation thing, whatever. It's so sad. It's like, you know, the original form that TM came out of, you just get assigned a mantra. You just get assigned a mantra and you do your mantra. And, and it's the most I've been doing. And it's been about a six, I think I'm in my seventh year of it. And of course the thing that I was like, ah, to do that. That's a lot. I, mean, I have so many meditations. It's been such a revelation to me. And it's the phrase that you just said that is why I'm bringing it up the perfectly imperfect practice. And, you know, it's easy to say perfectly imperfect, be perfectly imperfect. I mean, I really want to emphasize the idea of practice. I mean, one thing I loved about Uncab, it was almost like a practice more than a show. Like doing it is a practice because you have to get up on stage. It's a perfectly imperfect form. You never can. I mean, all comedy is perfectly imperfect, but especially when you're getting up and you're doing new material, new stories, new, just in the moment, following the audience. I mean, it's really perfectly imperfect. And so to have any practice, which teaches you that where you get to practice it, where, you know, so to meditate, I mean, you're going to fall asleep, you're going to start thinking, you know, and it's always, you know, it's always funny, uh, you know, comedic take on meditation is always like that thing at the beginning where you're like, and then I have a busy mind. But the whole point is you have a busy mind. It's not that you're doing it wrong. People are like, oh my God, I have so many thoughts. I'm doing it wrong. No, that's perfectly imperfect. You just come back to the mantra and it's this return. And to to bring it back to decision-making, it's the return to the mantra. It's the decision to return time and time again to the center that is the thing. You're never going to be always in the center. You're never going to be always in the center, but you learn to stop beating yourself up for walking away from the center and returning to the center. It's like, you're never going to be home all the time. You're going to, you know, we learned in the pandemic, you know, we want to leave. It's what we want. We want to leave. Sometimes we want to leave and return, but you need to establish that place that you're going to return to. And that's what I think we gets neglected a lot in, um, in how, you know, we, we've learned to be. Beth, you are a gift. Where can we find your wonderful busy mind? Um, you can find me at all the usual socials. I, I try to offer real content on my socials, I, uh, real writing and stuff on Instagram. I love, uh, I'm at Beth Lapidus. There's a Beth underscore Lapidus. Don't, that was a bad decision, by the way, Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> 
was a decision I really should have spent a little more time on. But nevertheless, I live with it and remind myself that it's a bad decision, but not a life ruining one. I'm on Twitter, Bethel Petis. I'm on Facebook, Bethel Petis. Uh, I actually have a newsletter that I send out about once a week that I try to offer, you know, some real writing in that also has all the shows and events and books and links. And, and then the book, I mean, the book, the book, the book, the book, there's so much in the book. There's eight and a half hours of me. And I, I can't tell you, you know, the, the delight also of, of the people that I talk to and, you know, a lot of the, my favorite on cabers and some will be in the next one. And then and the title one more time of the book. So you need to decide. A conversational title for a conversational forum. And the links are in the uh, in the episode notes. So excited to dive into this. It's been so much talking to you. Oh, you're a goddess. I can't wait to have you back for the next yeah, one. Yeah, have me back. It was super fun. Uh, anytime. Let's do it. Ooh, thank you. Oh, fantastic. And I want to thank you for listening to Camera Ready and Able. If you would like to decide for a free copy of my ebook, 12 Tips for Success on Camera, you can skip on over to ableintermedia.com and help yourself to the complimentary download. And as always, please be sure to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already.